This is Margaret Cho, and you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together, and just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell, some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. All the stars lined up, but the music had us, and when they walked out on that stage, there was no way that anybody who was of a certain age wasn't going to be watching. You know, the great thing about Sullivan was we all sat around a television as a family in those days. There wasn't a TV in every room. There was one television and Sunday nights at eight was sacrosanct. It was always a pleasant surprise as to who had promoted at the front of the show. Today's guests are Margot Precht and Andrew Solt, who join us for a special episode devoted to celebrating the 75th anniversary of The Ed Sullivan Show and its lasting impact upon American culture. The granddaughter of Ed Sullivan, Precht is a documentary filmmaker as well as a UCLA graduate with a degree in sociology. Her latest project traces her grandfather's life and work as a television pioneer who reigned as the medium's longtime tastemaker. In particular, Preck's documentary explores a little-known aspect of Sullivan's legacy, which involves his radical dedication to diversity that would act as an inflection point for igniting conversations about race in America. Andrew Salt is an Emmy and Grammy-winning producer, director, writer, and documentary filmmaker. Over the years, Salt has released a number of documentaries about the history of rock and roll. His collaboration with television documentarian and producer David Wolper included their work together on Imagine John Lennon in 1988. In 1995, Salt served as executive producer for Time Life's 10 episode, The History of Rock and Roll, which documented rock music from its early years through the advent of U2 and Nirvana. Later, in 2001, Salt worked with Yoko Ono, Greg Vines, and Leslie Tong on the Grammy Award-winning Give Me Some Truth, the making of John Lennon's Imagine album. In 1990, Salt purchased the rights to the Ed Sullivan Show Library, which consists of more than a thousand hours of kinescopes and videotapes that CBS broadcast between 1948 and 1971 on Sunday nights. Included in the archive are over 10,000 live performances by virtually every popular entertainer of the post-war era, highlighted, of course, by appearances from Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Welcome, Margot Precht and Andrew Salt. One of the hallmarks of our show 
is that we interview folks about their Beatles origin stories. And guess what? <laughs> the, the number one answer uh, for folks of, of a certain age is February 9th, 1964. <laughs> um, bar none, um, our guests uh, have been, it's as though they've been waiting all their lives to share their experiences uh, about this, this formative moment. And I might as well ask both of you uh, this, this very question. And I know you'll have very different answers, but um, Andrew, February 9th, 1964. What, what are the memories of, of, of the, well, and I know I'm talking to the director of the Heroes of Rock and Roll now, so. Well, it was the pivotal moment. It was just uh, leading up to it, I remember, you know, was so exciting because the Beatle album was playing. The music was everywhere on Top 40 radio, but we never saw what they looked like in terms of walking, talking, singing, moving. There were albums, and there were a couple of them out, and uh, it was just so exciting when that music landed in late '63, and um, it was a, it was a moment that uh, loomed large at the time. I mean, nobody knew how many millions of people were going to be watching, of course, but um, it was a game changer, and uh, uh, for everybody my age, and I was just. Uh, uh, in December, just a couple of months before I turned 16, so I got my driver's license on the day. I could turn on my car radio and listen to all my loving and I want to hold your hand and she loves you, etc., etc. I never could sing or do musical, uh, you know, I didn't have a musical gift, but I loved music. And everybody at school, I was in a boarding school five days a week and Everybody was singing the songs and getting ready for that Sunday night. It's kind of remarkable if you think about it that for for such a lack of synchronicity in terms of marketing and other aspects, that all that energy became focused, and then so many folks were were in the audience that night. You know, when you think about it in retrospect, I, it almost makes it feel inevitable. And of course, people like me who also were English professors love to look for fate. Right and and irony and everything, uh, but of course it wasn't wasn't that simple, was it? Well, Margot can speak to it too. I think. You know, she may not she may well, not have been born, but she well that that there's kind of an issue there. Yeah. Now, Margot, do not feel alone. I am in the same company as you. Oh, okay, good. So two good. of us do not have our February 9th, nineteen sixty four. Memory, uh, yeah. Memory, um, but, but you must have a Beatles origin story. Oh, well, yes, um, in that I'm the youngest of five children, um, the youngest of Ed's five grandchildren, and my brothers were huge Beatles fans, and they actually got to meet the Beatles and have their photo taken with them which looms large in, you know, our, our memories, our family memories. My sister, who was also in there age-wise, was very annoyed that she was not included in, in the photo op there because for some reason she didn't, di didn't go that day. Um, but it was their first appearance on the show. And then my brothers ended up also going to Miami, um, for the appearance there. 
So, um, you know, the be- the Beatles have been a huge part of my life. Um, of course, a lot of people remember my grandfather because of the Beatles. Um, so even though I wasn't born yet, um, I-, I-, I do feel a connection to that time. Undoubtedly. And, and, you know, it sounds like you developed your own enjoyment, if not love for their music. Was there a moment for you, Margot, when you thought, wow, this band is really something special? You know, I just grew to love their music over time. Um, I remember Yellow Submarine was one of the first um, songs that I latched onto as a young child. Um, and I had a little Yellow Submarine that I had in the bathtub. <laughs> but um, I, I, um, you know, it, it was always there, that music. It was part of, you know, the part of my life. It was the music that was always on. So I can't remember an exact moment now, but. Oh, I, I, and, and, and that's, that's a fair response, right? I mean, they, they are still always there, mm-hmm. right? It's just a matter of when, I guess, if, if one taps into them or not. Now, of course, we've spoken a lot about your grandfather on this show as, um, as our many, many guests talk about how important he was in their lives and uh, what a what a change maker he was, right? A difference maker he was in bringing different kinds of art and entertainment literally into their living rooms. But one thing we never ever discuss on the show is what was Ed like? What was he like? Um, you know, and your what was he like as an, as a person other than this jovial person who would show up in living rooms on Sunday nights for for low those many years for what like more than a thousand hours, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, my grandfather, I believe really, you know, he, he loved people. Um, he loved engaging with people and he loved talent as a grandfather. You know, we lived in New York at the time and, um, my grandmother and grandfather would be over a lot. But he was always deep in thought, usually, you know, probably thinking about his show and, you know, all the issues that come up producing a show like that. But um, he also had time to do little magic tricks um, for me and talk to me. Um, There was an incident when I was younger where I was... Uh, somebody was kind of bullying me at school and and took something of mine and wouldn't give it back until I gave them, um, was able to give them my grandfather's autograph. And I remember just being so devastated by that and not wanting to ask him because, you know, that was one of the golden rules growing up in our household is that, you know, you never, you know, boast or say, you know, that you're, you know, who your grandfather is. At that point, I, I knew he was famous. I, you know, it was, it, I didn't really know a lot about him, except that, you know, he, he was famous and, and people took notice of him wherever he went. But um, he, he, I remember a moment where he took me aside and sat with me, just me and him, and, and just um told me that my mom had told him about this dilemma that I was in and he never wanted me to be afraid of coming and talking to him and 
asking him for whatever I needed. So, um, you know, I think there was, you know, he definitely had a very tender side. Um, he loved children, definitely loved children. And he, he was very, very much, um, you know, a sentimental guy too, I would say. So I, I've got to ask, because I know our listeners right now are wondering, did he go and take out the bully? What happened? <laughs> well, <laughs> did he, he also called it tape and he just was like, it's funny that you say that because he was quite a pop off, you know, and um, he didn't like criticism or anybody messing with his family. But no, he gave me his autograph <laughs> to give to the boy. And I'm sure he said something about when I gave it to him, you know, I, I kind of remember, but, but, you know, I was a kid. He passed away when I was about eight or nine years old. So, um, you know, I only got to have um, childhood conversations with him. I never got to have a adult conversation with him. And I'm sure, you know, that would have been very different. I love it though. He shut it down. He signed it. <laughs> Got yeah. it out there. Yeah. Man of action. Yeah. <laughs> Great story. Off, right. I mean, <laughs> they were the famously on the day of, of the day or the day before the show, he didn't like the Beatles set. Right. And he said, this is not happening. <laughs> and that's when we got the famous arrows in instead. The guy who designed that Bill Bonnard. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It was so talented. And apparently I've seen pictures of the original, which was the word Beatles on some kind of large drape. And it was, you know, there was nothing exciting about it. And Ed instinctively asked for a change and, and Bill Bonnard came through as he always did. We had the pleasure of working with him on the show we did the 50th anniversary years ago. Margot's father, <coughs> Bob Precht, was the great producer on the show. I mean, Marlo Lewis was excellent and he was the right guy at the right time starting in 48. But when Bob came in and Bob took over the show for at least, I think, half of its 23 years, Margo, you're better in these details. But yeah. Bob, Bob changed the show, upgraded the show and made it what it really is today. He, he took it to another level not only in the bookings and the talent and his sensibility, but in the look of the show, the quality of the show, the staffing of the show. Incredible producer. I always was amazed by the show, starting when I was a child, and same with my wife. That's how the love of Sullivan started, and then I was doing projects, but we always went to the Sullivan door first to see if they had something on the subject, and most often... They did, and uh, I was fortunate to establish a, a relationship, a friendship of sorts with Bob. And the more I looked at the show, the more obvious it is that those years, especially the 60s, and especially the color years, and never using the same set twice and keeping the look of that show so state-of-the-art was really unbelievable, and he... He saved the show. He made the show and he took it to another level because Ed was Ed. I mean, he was incredibly capable in what he was doing in terms of hosting, producing and organizing aspects of the show. But 
Bob is a major television producer in the history of television, in my opinion. We'll be back with more from Margot Precht and Andrew Salt after these messages. You're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com. It's true, right, that Bob's in the room with Epstein and, and helping to make that deal in, in what, November 1963, um, yeah. which is even more remarkable because the Beatles were only a few days out from the, the what, the, the apocalyptic moment. Maybe apocalyptic is the wrong word. <laughs> uh, <laughs> origin moment for Beatlemania in, in the UK. And, uh, and Bob and, and Ed are already on top of this. That's really quite something. Margo, tell us what you know about all that and how it happened. Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) There's two stories, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) There's two stories, though, the the PR story, I guess, and then the real story. Um, But I think it had been in the works for quite some time. Um, Peter Pritchard, who lived in London at the time, was a talent scout for my grandfather and told my grandfather that he really needed to, you know, consider this this group, that they were rising stars um, in England and, and that he needed to have them on the show. So everything was really in the works. It was, there was a story that my grandfather discovered them at an airport. And um, I think that was just a, a way of condensing the story. <laughs> yeah, I think I might have repeated that one a couple times and maybe a book or yeah. two. Yeah, but, but um, no, the real story was, it was a lot more involved than that. And um I don't know, and I'm sure your listeners know, so I don't want to insult anybody, but but the deal that was made originally um, came from, you know, my father and also my grandfather put that deal together. And my grand, my, I know my dad was a little shocked <laughs> when he learned, you know, the deal that my grandfather had just agreed to. I guess that happened a lot because... <laughs> You know, sometimes uh, wires get crossed, but um, no, I I know that my dad at the time didn't really think much of this event, but it's become history. Well, and let's speak about that a little bit more because I have thought this same thing. It seemed like ten thousand was too much money, right? Yes, to, to my my dad. Yes, absolutely. Um, he he thought that he, he should have held back a little bit on that deal. He thought his, that my grandfather, his father-in-law should have held back, but when it was done, it was done. And my dad took care of it. And then, you know, he also oversaw the budget. My dad did. So that was kind of part of his job. I mean, obviously in retrospect, money well spent, et cetera, et cetera. And that Epstein was a good negotiator, but it, it, when you look at those numbers before they're really known at all in the United States, what a deal. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. And if you look at, and I'm sure Andrew knows these numbers, but, um, you know, some of the other acts, what they were paid, including Elvis and um, Topo Gigio <laughs> and people like that, it didn't quite compare. I think there was a big risk in in terms of not just the, I don't know if the money was as, 
concerning, perhaps. That's my view from what I've read. But the fact that it was three shows in a row, and if the ratings weren't going to be good enough on the first one, oh, my God, what's going to happen on the second and third? And it was in February sweeps. There's three sweeps periods in old network television, February, May, and November. And February is obviously very important. And um, there was a chance that maybe not everybody would show up for this show. And uh, obviously, Ed and the Golden Gut, he had, and Bob had the trust, and obviously the network went along with it. But that was a concern in addition to the money. And uh, Brian Epstein, I think, was very clever to come over in November and basically put everything in place. But I think the interesting thing that has come out over the years And of course, this ties to the assassination of President Kennedy in November of 63 on the 22nd. I think um, all the stars lined up and John and Paul had this pillow fight of ecstasy at the uh, George Sank Hotel that's been well covered by Harry Benson and uh, his photographs. It was just everything lined up, but the music had us. And when they walked out on that stage, there was no way that anybody who was of a certain age wasn't going to be watching. And, you know, the great thing about Sullivan was we all sat around a television as a family in those days. There wasn't a TV in every room. There was one television. And Sunday nights at 8 was sacrosanct for me, for my wife, when we were kids, as I was growing up, I mean, you never knew who really was going to be on because TV Guide would go to bed over three weeks before. So you could look what was in TV Guide. But it was always a pleasant surprise as to who had promoted at the front of the show. So you had to kind of tune in to see who you were going to see that week. And he delivered and uh, he and Bob delivered on such a high level, the quality of the show. When other shows had three cameras, he had five, you know, I mean, there was just, it was a, the jewel in the CBS crown. It was the the queen of, uh, or the king of uh, Sunday Night TV for so long. It, it, it might have there. been both the king and the queen, you know. <laughs> well, you know, I think it's um, interesting, Andrew, you mentioned the assassination and from my understanding, when the Beatles came, um, to the United States, it was a breath of fresh air. You know, the the country was in mourning. Um, people, people were feeling hopeless. And the Beatles brought light. And people needed it, and they grabbed it. And I think when you say the stars aligned, that's very true. Yeah. Meeting the Beatles was could not have been more pleasanter especially after exactly right and and uh that kind of darkness um there there tends to be i've noticed in a lot of Beatles scholarship this movement away from that and it simply doesn't add up to me and it never has you know we we people forget you know most american cities still only had two networks not three they you know there were no independent channels really to speak of when people had a major news story like that it lived Right. And it, it had long legs as opposed to today where there's so much happening that, you know, 
in in a in an instant. Um, you know, we're already turning the page on some other catastrophe or. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I I subscribe to that certainly too. Um, I wonder if we could we could speak a bit about just how large. Uh, and especially in, in in a certain sense of being a tastemaker, the show loomed for so many years. It's almost difficult to 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 grasp that, right? In our day and age, you're both documentary filmmakers. Where we have, I mean, how many producing channels are there now? Two hundred, three hundred, something mm-hmm. crazy like that. You know, creating new original fiction, nonfiction content, and and here we are, you know, talking about a show who held far more power held far yeah. more power than than we're able to harness today simply because the competition's different, right? Yeah. Well, my grandfather at the time really was a curator of culture for all of America. Um, if a person or act was on his show and my grandfather, you know, gave him that nod, you know, that this is somebody you need to watch then and you should appreciate this person people listened and it was huge because of the audience when television was more communal um than it is at all today now it's very fragmented but um yeah i mean it was a very different time very different than it is now and some sometimes I wish that we could bring it all back, but <laughs> yeah, me too. I make life a lot easier. But um, no, his his show was a microcosm of fully integrated society, and I think it contributed to making the con- country more tolerant too. Ed became the arbiter of American popular culture and taste, and his impact was tremendous. He started the show in 48, and it lasted till 71. And over the years, he changed the way the world was reflected and how we saw it. And he brought us culture, things like during the Cold War with Russia, Ed was able to figure out a way for him to go to Russia or bring the Bolshoi Ballet or bring Nureyev and Fontaine onto the Sullivan stage. I mean, stuff that nobody else could do. There is nothing like the Sullivan Show, not only in America, but anywhere in the world, because where else did you get the lineup of the most amazing talent from day one until the end? And it really reflects our our world of the those two key decades, the 50s and 60s, and, you know, Elvis's importance and what that moment was for Sullivan and the show, and for America, and the controversy, and how Ed faced it, and dealt with it, and benefited from it, and really liked Elvis. And then Colonel Parker was contacted by Brian Epstein, who said, you know, how do I get this done? What's the best way? And he said, Sullivan, get on the Sullivan show. And then, of course, Elvis was on three times, but he couldn't do three shows in a row because he was making a movie at Fox, Love Me Tender, and he was back and forth. So, you know, he went to New York for some of the shows. The first one was here in Hollywood. Ed, unfortunately, had had a car accident, so it was introduced by Charles Lawton. But it was also another huge moment. 60 million people saw that. When the Beatles came to America, 
73 million people tuned in. It was something like an 86 share. So CBS was the only place you could see that moment. It wasn't like a news event. So it was a news event in time and such an influential moment for so many great artists. When you talk about Bruce Springsteen, it was the Elvis moment. But then, of course, it was the Beatles moment. Everybody in popular music and, you know, rock and roll or, you know, the foundation of all the music that we love today came really from the Sullivan Show. And that was because Ed opened the doors and he decided that if you had talent, you got a shot in the spotlight on his show. He wasn't going to uh, deny you. And if you were good and the audience reacted well, you came back. So, you know, he, he was thinking big picture all the time and how to satisfy four generations, three or four generations in America's living rooms. Well, he provided access, you know, uh, Andrew mentioned the Bolshoi Ballet. I mean, yeah. American, most Americans weren't going to go to Broadway and see a Broadway show. So yeah. What would that do? <laughs> You'd have a scene right there on, on Sunday night. Yeah. And Ed figured out how to get Broadway acts on his show because there was pushback from the shows themselves, feeling that this wasn't, uh, especially, uh, you know, some of the, unions were concerned about the sets so he figured out a way where they would create new sets but bring these shows onto his stage and thank god for that because my fair lady for example with julie andrews she was she wasn't cast as we know in the movie and uh, it wouldn't her incredible performances in 1956 from my fair lady or Richard Burton and Julie Andrews doing Camelot. The Camelot was not that uh, well-reviewed at the beginning. And Ed was thinking, you know, this show is great. And he was very close with Lerner and Lowe and Rodgers and Hammerstein and all of the great composers, Cole Porter to the Gershwins. To, I mean, you can go down the list. It's everybody. And um, he said, you know, let's do something on Camelot. And suddenly there were lines around the block and he, they sold a million dollars worth of tickets over a week or something. And he changed what was successful. He impacted the culture continually. And he took pleasure in the fact that he was giving America something that nobody else was giving him. And he was satisfying the kids with uh, Topo or with the... Um, Muppets. Muppets, you know, <laughs> I mean, Jim Henson's body of work on Sullivan is just phenomenal. And it's it's what led to his tremendous success. And, um, you know, there were these opportunities given to stars. Comedians told me that if we, it, they did one performance on Sullivan, they could play clubs throughout America for two years without having to go back. If they got more shots on Sullivan, their career just took off, and we know the, those stories as well. So, you know, when it came to the unusual, the special, and he took chances. And he, you know, the history of African-American music and its evolution from W.C. Handy in 1948, the father of the blues, to the Jackson 5 in 70, 71, whatever it is. I mean, that arc and that evolution is there because Ed made it happen and Bob Precht especially made it happen. And it really, I mean, just think of the British invasion. 
The British invasion happens because of February 9th, 64. Everything changes. American music was also in a bit of a soft period after 1960. There had been the payola hearings, and then there were the, it was the time of the Billies and the Bobbies and all the solo acts, you know. And the music softened. It wasn't as edgy as the rock and roll of Bo Diddley or Elvis or Buddy Holly or all of the great stars from the, you know, from the 50s. And uh, Ed made that happen. Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon 1980, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 Podcast. Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world, and everyone has a story. <laughs>